Well, let's take our Bibles and find our way to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be looking today at a summary of the believer's armor. We spent some considerable time, a couple of months, looking at each one of these pieces by themselves. And I think as important as that is to look at the parts, let's just take a moment before we go on to the end of this epistle and look at the whole, because that's the way the Ephesians would have read it in one sitting. And I want us to get our minds, wrap our minds around that together as well. Ephesians chapter 6, let me read verses, six, verses 10 through 17. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The past few weeks, actually the last couple of months, we've been working through Paul's description of what we affectionately call the believer's armor. The armor of God is what he describes it as. This is a detailed illustration, an extended illustration that Paul paints for Christians to have a very clear and a very detailed understanding of the troubling reality that every believer is under constant and strategic attack from Satan, the devil, from his accomplices who are fallen angels known as demons. The apostle Peter joins in this description where he talks about how serious the devil is about these attacks. He says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Have your radar on. Look around. Be ready. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to consume, to devour. But resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the whole world. It's a very interesting description that Peter gives. He says, stand firm, resist, fight against the schemes of the devil, knowing that you have brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who are doing the same. But he describes their struggle as sufferings, which tells us that some of our sufferings have to do with spiritual warfare. Our spiritual enemy, according to Peter, wants to maul us, slaughter us, and devour its prey. How does Satan devour someone? It's very simple. He tempts us to believe his lies. And this battle against the demonic, against Satan, takes place 
as we'll see, not in flesh and blood, not in the corporeal universe that we, we, we experience by our senses. It takes place in the mind. Paul told the Corinthians, but I am afraid for you, 2 Corinthians 11, 3. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. He described the attack of the old serpent, Satan himself, as an attack that takes place between our ears, in our mind, in our thinking. He's also described it as trying to dislodge us from our affections and our devotion to Christ himself. It's interesting, if you keep reading in that passage, he goes on to talk about people pre preach another Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. Meaning that Satan is the cleverest of clever because he uses our concepts, our theology, our words, and his dictionary. And it's always a kernel of truth surrounded by a cadre of lies. If you look closely at the pieces of the armor here that Paul mentions in Ephesians 6... They all, every one of them, have to do with what we think and how we think. Every one of them. They deal with our minds, whether we think biblically and godly thoughts or whether we believe the lies that Satan tempts us to believe. And as I said, we've been studying this passage for a few weeks, but today I want to put it all together in one sermon. Now, I'm not going to be going back to all of the detailed illustration of the Roman armor. We did that in each each uh, sermon. I'm not going to go into all of the Old Testament allusions, how God wears some of this armor and he imparts it to us. We'll be looking at a kind of a high altitude. Now, before we do that, can, can we just have a kind of a personal moment? Um, I've been saving this until the end of the series, but this passage has a very special place in my heart. It's profound in more ways than I can describe. When I graduated high school, a friend gave me a cassette tape series of 12 tapes by John MacArthur that was called The Believer's Armor. And I still have it. This is priceless to me. And I even still have all 12 tapes. I have nothing to play them with, but I do have all 12 tapes. And... It's probably useless to most people, but I, sometimes I just want to um, This is what the Lord used to call me in the ministry. Because I was going through a very difficult time in my life. About a year later, I'd never listened to the tapes. Pulled them off about nine at night. And I listened to all 12 in a row and got up the next morning and the Lord had rocked my world. I remember having this thought. This is embarrassing, but I, I remember thinking, what a great idea for a preacher during a sermon. What a great idea to... Explain the Bible verses. I'd never experienced that expository preaching in my life. And I remember it was just, my, my call to ministry was this simple. That next morning after listening to those 12 tapes is just saying, I think I'd like to do that with my life. I want to explain the Bible to people like this man explained it to me. And I was pursuing ministry from that morning on. 
it's interesting that Peter instructs us to be on the alert, to resist, and that Paul instructs us to stand firm. Jesus taught us to pray, deliver us from the evil one. And these guidelines all imply that we as believers do not need to go on looking for this fight. We don't need to go out looking for this fight. It's, it's already being waged. You are being sucker punched. Low blows, high blows, blows from the back in this very moment. You are under attack as a believer. Our enemy and his henchmen have already launched their attack. You have been attacked by the devil since you woke up this morning. The question is, do you recognize it? You say, how does he attack us? He lies, there's the, the whole sermon in one little sentence. He lies to us by tempting us to believe that disobedience trumps obedience. It's very simple. That his ways are better than God's ways. And he's slick in how he tries to convince us of those things. These guidelines all imply that we as believers do not need to go looking for a fight. We're being punched and attacked. We're having deadly arrows flung at us, shot at us, minute by minute. It's interesting that Paul has a perspective on this at the end of Romans in verse, excuse me, in chapter 16, verse 19, Romans 16, 19 and 20. He says, the report of your obedience, he's closing up the letter to Rome, the report of your obedience, that's important. I've heard about your obedience. The report of your obedience has reached all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Then he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. This is a critical insight. Paul is saying God wins in the end. He will one day crush Satan. But in the moment, in the moments of our life, right now, in the here and now, God triumphs through us over Satan by our obedience to him. Not talking to him, not binding him, not casting him or his henchmen out of something or out of someone. There's a connection between the simple admonition to obey Christ and the Lord's defeat of the devil through us. I love how William Grinnell puts this. By the way, I have his set on the Christian in complete armor. It's over a thousand pages on this passage. So, we only took a few weeks, just for the record. Grinnell says this, Cowards never won heaven. Do not claim that you are begotten of God and you have his royal blood running through your veins unless you can prove your lineage by his heroic spirit. To dare to be holy in spite of men and devils, end quote. In other words, you confound the enemy when you obey in a simple way. We're going to notice as we go through this passage what was shocking to me when I first read it, studied it many years ago. It was shocking to me when I heard uh, John MacArthur preaching through it. And that is this. There's only one place in the New Testament we are, where we are strategically told, here's how to deal with the devil. Here's how to deal with demons. Here's how to do spiritual warfare. One place. Ephesians 6. 
Nowhere does it say that we should cast them out or talk to them or bind them. You know what it says? Think rightly. Every part of the spiritual armor is, drumroll, normal, regular, faithful Christian living. I think you'll see that as we dive through this. So let's, let's gain some perspective. Just as a summary at looking at our spiritual warfare, I want to provide for you and with you three considerations for victorious spiritual warfare. That's been the aim that Paul has been pointing us toward in the whole passage. Victorious spiritual warfare. I want to give you three considerations. Two of them are theological and practical, and one of them is exegetical right out of Paul's letter. First consideration is this. Satan and demons are real and the attacking enemies of our souls. They are the attacking enemies of our soul. Satan and demons are real and the attacking enemies of our soul. I believe in the devil. Do you? Jesus did. God does. It's urgent that we understand that we are in a fight against a real and a living and a devious devil and his henchmen. Christians face a bilateral threat in thinking about the devil. The first is overestimating the devil and his power. Just seeing the devil everywhere and everything. I told you about the guy who was a dear friend who, when I was a young Christian, um, I, I was sick, sneezing, runny nose, and he, he asked me if he could cast out the demon of post-nasal drip from me. Now, I didn't finish the story, but I said, sure, please. I mean, I, I, my nose is running. And he said that he did it and nothing changed, but that's for another time. This is Flip Wilson, right? Geraldine, the devil made me do it. Where we just find the devil everywhere. When I was a young man, I remember very vividly and scared me to death. We had revivals every year. It's kind of funny that we could schedule God's revivals of our church, but we did. And uh, we were in this revival and, and this old preacher guy was a country guy. He would have loved our music this morning, Aaron. Um, he, uh, he says, I was in here last night and I saw, I was in here praying and you wouldn't have wanted to be here with me because I came in and sat in here by myself in the dark. And then I said, he said, in the dark, remember that. And then I saw three demons up in the rafters. They're trying to keep us from having revival. And I just, my first thought was, it was dark, dude. How did you see them? There's another danger though, and that's underestimating his power, his influence, and demonic forces. Just thinking that that's a, a bygone, superstitious generation. No, he is real. They are real. And we need to make sure that we are alerted to them, as Peter said. We would do well to heed the words of John Blanchard, who wrote, We are opposed by a living, intelligent, resourceful, and cunning enemy who can outlive the oldest Christian, out busy, outwork the busiest Christian, outfight the strongest, and outwit the wisest. End quote. We have a tough enemy. He's been doing it for a long time. They're experts in temptation, experts in seduction towards sin. They know the ways of man and they know your ways. I am convinced that you have demons watching you all the time. 
They know your strengths and your weaknesses. They know what temptation works with you that wouldn't work with someone else and vice versa. And as I said, here in Ephesians 6, Paul gives the most comprehensive and explicit instruction for how a believer is to interact with and combat the devil and his demons. So we have to start by saying, yes, Satan is real. The Bible says so. Genesis 3, we see him tempting our first parents. In Matthew 4, we see him tempting Jesus. Who is Satan? You find out mostly who Satan is by looking at the narratives uh, where, where he's described and his names. Probably the first and foremost is in Job 1, where we find out that he is just an angel. He's not the, the anti-God. He's not the omniscient, omnipresent, bad God, and we have the good one. No, no. He's just an angel. He's a local entity. He can't be everywhere at one time. He doesn't know everything. He also is submissive to God. In Job 1, he has to show up and give a status report to God. Where have you been and what have you been doing? And he has to give God an answer. We find out that he's the head of fallen angels, according to Matthew 4. The title Satan is used 53 times in 47 verses. It means our adversary. He's also called the devil, the serpent, the dragon, Abaddon, Apollyon, Revelation 9, 11, Belial in 2 Corinthians 6, 15, Beelzebul in Matthew 12, the evil one, the tempter, the ruler, the prince, the prince of the power of the air, the God of this age, the accuser, the adversary, the deceiver, the enemy, a murderer, a roaring lion, the angel of light, and the father of what? Lies. Listen, folks, if we don't have a robust, robust and thorough belief in, understanding of the devil, understanding of these demons, you will never be able to fight them victoriously. You say, well, I don't want to fight them. You don't have a choice. You were drug in the ring. Paul says in verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not in the corporeal world. It's not something we can do with our bodies or with our senses, but against the rulers, these are all categories of demons, the powers against the world forces of this darkness. That means they are at work individually with this and they are at work in the world stratas of worldviews, governments and universities, against the spiritual forces of, this, of wickedness in the heavenly places. They are everywhere you can imagine. Not at one time in one place, but there's enough of them to be looking everywhere. Then there are three, we have to notice in verses 13, 12 and 13, there are three actions to apply. He says in verse 13, Therefore take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Take up the full armor. Resist, stand firm. Now, you got to ask when you hear that, what does it mean to take up the full armor, of God, full armor of God? What does it mean to resist the devil? And what does it mean to stand firm? And that is all answered in the passage. So the first consideration for victorious spiritual warfare is you got to believe it exists. Satan and demons are alive, they're real, they're, and they are, the, they are the attacking influence of our souls. Number two, the battle includes offensive and defensive 
armaments. Where am I? The battle includes offensive and defensive pieces, armaments. Okay, I've already shown you some tapes and a tape series. Um, someone first hour said, hey, by the way, I, I have a car where you can come and play those that still has a cassette. <laughs> I won't rat that person out, but it was interesting to say, let's go out to the car and listen to these tapes. Um, but I have another illustration that I, I, I scoured the internet to find what is a good picture of what we're talking about. And this was the best one I could find. A Roman soldier who has his armor on who is set for battle. It includes offensive and defensive armaments. There are countless illustrations. You can get this one, but I like this one. as the clearest I found to an ancient Near Eastern description of a Roman clad in armor, Roman soldier clad in armor. Now, as we examine the six pieces of armor listed there in Ephesians 6, there was something remarkably simple about them. I mentioned it a moment ago. Each piece uh, illustrates a feature and virtue of the Christian faith, the Christian life, that are pervasively discussed, discussed all over the New Testament. This is the one place that talks about how to deal with the demonic. And when you pull back the illustration and what you're left with looking at these things that it illustrates, it's normal Christian living. It's obedience. It's following the Lord. Truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and God's word. You find those, those on every page of the Bible. But as I said earlier, every, there's something else important here. Every one of these pieces of armor to defend ourselves against the temptations of the devil, every one of them has something to do with how or what we think. Our thinking is the battlefield, as we'll see in a moment of this battle. Our primary battle with the devil, with demons, is over what we believe, what we will believe. Will we have faith in God, faith in his word, or will we believe Satan and the worldly way that he purports is true and beneficial? This makes perfect sense, knowing that his primary tactic is to lie, to convince us to believe things contrary to God's word and contrary to God's ways. Let's review them very quick and very briefly, okay? First is the belt of truth. Donning, putting on, strapping on, tightening up the belt of truth. Stand firm, verse 14. Stand firm, anchor yourself, having girded your loins with truth. Literally having uh, tightened up your belt of truth. And girding your loins means to expose your, your, your calves and your thighs to pull. Uh, in the moment of battle, they would pull that, that skirt up as, as it looks like the, their tunic up under the belt, tighten it so that they had full freedom to be mobile. To defend against the enemy's attacks, the first thing that comes to Paul's mind is truth. Truth. This speaks to the need to defend ourselves against Satan's lies with truth. John 8, 44. Jesus is talking to those followers of the devil them himself, even though they would not have said they were. They were religious zealots and 
legalist. He says, you are of your father, the devil, John 8, 44. You are of your father, the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. Does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. Listen, for he is a liar and the father of lies. We'll talk a little in a few minutes about the fact that this, this list of armaments and defenses is bookended by truth and the word of God, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, hangs on the belt of truth. There's a reasoning going on there. Satan wants you to believe things that are not true so that you would doubt the, doubt the things that are We'll be very specific about that in just a moment. Secondly, the breastplate of righteousness, wearing the breastplate of righteousness, verse 14 in the middle, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. This was a, it was what we would probably call a bulletproof vest. It was something that you wore to protect your vital organs in your torso. The soldier would wear this breastplate. It was layers of thick fabric, leather, and pieces of metal that were that were layered over each other. Paul uses this breastplate to illustrate our need to defend against the devil and demons with righteousness. The breastplate illustrates protecting our vital organs with righteousness or protecting what's most important in our walk with the Lord with righteousness. This points to thinking rightly about righteousness and living righteously. There's the thinking and the living part of this. Our minds are under constant attack by the devil to tempt us to disbelieve the precious truth that the righteousness of Jesus Christ is ours through faith and that God sees the righteousness of Jesus on my account. And if you don't believe that and you won't believe that, you will suffer. How will you suffer? From a lack of assurance. Because if you're not trusting in Christ's righteousness, you have only one choice, and that's to trust in your own. This is the ever-present theological battle that's been around since Paul's day where he was fighting the gnomists or the, uh, the Judaizers. But it also was the, the key theological principle, the material principle of the Reformation. This is what the Reformation was fought over. Do our works contribute to our salvation or is it Christ's righteousness alone? Now, the breastplate of righteousness protects us from the Satan, help causing us to think wrongly about our righteousness, wrongly about Christ's righteousness. But there's also another element. And Paul, I think, is strategically general when he just says the breastplate of righteousness because that's talking about justification. God made us righteous. He made us holy by our belief. By grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But there's also an element of righteousness that is sanctification. That is, we live righteous. That's what Paul was talking about to the Romans in Romans 16 when he said, your obedience is the present tense stomping on the, the neck of Satan to be crushed. The righteousness of Christ provides our justification and the power of God provides for our living righteousness, our holiness, and sanctification. And I think they're both in play here. I mean, Satan would love for you to think you can have Jesus and sin. 
This is the old lordship debate. Oh, you can do and be and think anything you want and have Jesus as well. No, the Lord says to people in Matthew 7, you got all the way to the judgment thinking you could have myself and sin and depart from me, I never knew you. Satan tempts us to disbelieve and to doubt Christ's righteousness and lean on our own and at the same time tempts us to believe that if we have that righteousness, it makes no difference in how we live, nor should we have an effort to live righteously. He says, you're going to protect yourself if you can understand righteousness rightly. You have to think rightly about this. We just sang a few minutes ago, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, within, upward I look and I see him there who did what? Made an end to all my sin because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is, sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's, that is protection against wrong thinking. It's so important. And we'd spent a lot of time talking about that. Thirdly, the cleats of the gospel. Having shod, literally sandaled, put sandals on your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Preparation, preparation to stand firm. Equipment to stand firm. With what? The gospel. What's the gospel of? Not just the generic gospel of good news, but the gospel of peace. As Paul concludes that letter to the Romans, he writes, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Isn't that interesting? Sounds a bit odd. The God of peace is a crushing God. That doesn't sound very peaceful to me. Satan, though, is the enemy of all dimensions of peace, so he must be defeated through reconciliation, our reconciliation with God and our being reconciled with anyone that we have enmity with. David Garland says, Christian love and charity neutralize all of Satan's powers over us and serves as an invisible protective shield, end quote. It's peace with God and peace with others. Romans 12, 18 Insofar as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Blessed, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Paul said earlier in the epistle, Ephesians 4, 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of what? Peace. We have been given peace, which makes us stewards of peace. Satan loves to attack through disunity. Disunity in your family, disunity at church, disunity at work, disunity with your neighbors. He's the God of war our God gives the gospel of peace. You may not be able to settle everything. I think that's why Paul said, insofar as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You do what you can. Blessed are the peacemakers. Number four. Again, this is just summary. We spent a lot of time 
looking at the nuance of this, the shield of faith, clutching the shield of faith. This is one that has some riders on it, like you would on an insurance form. It has some qualifiers. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which, now we find out about the shield, you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. That shield that a Roman soldier would have would be covered on the outside with thick leather. And that thick leather before a battle would be soaked in water. And the reason is the enemy would fire not only sharp arrows, but sharp arrows that had been dipped in thick tar or pitch and were on fire. They would light them on fire and try to catch the, the, the wooden uh, uh, shields on fire or, or uh, catch the grass around the people on fire. And so what they would do is catch these arrows with their shields. And extinguish them. When they hit that wet leather, it would extinguish. There's also uh, accounts of people on the front lines, their, their leather drying out and people behind them taking their position so they could go wet the leather again to extinguish these flaming arrows. Do you understand that there are arrows that have been shot by the enemy at you that are in the air right now. Do you have the means to block them, to extinguish them? How do you do that? How do you do that? What is Satan? What are, what are these arrows comprised of? Very simple. Look at the look at the issue. Things that undermine our faith. Lies that undermine our faith. As we study, this speaks to the arrows dipped in that pitch. They're on fire. They're sharp. And the point being illustrated is that Satan is attacking our minds in ways that faith can be our defense. He causes us to disbelieve or to doubt God's word. He tempts us to think God's word is not true or not sufficient. And if he can do this, he disarms us and we're vulnerable to his lies said last week that one of the key uh, strategies in war or in even hand-to-hand -hand combat is to take away the, the weapon that your opponent has and also to take away his defense. If they take away this defense, then he's vulnerably shot at. Satan is attacking our minds in ways that faith can be our defense. What is faith? Simply taking God at his word. But he wants you to doubt God's word disbelieve it. And we'll come back and talk more specifically about that in just a second. Next piece. Number five, strapping on the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. This is a very easy one to understand. What do our heads do? They think. What do helmets do? They protect our heads. These were, uh, this is a very good picture that's on the PowerPoint it was a helmet that was protective on the backside with a very long flank that would protect a, an attack to the neck from the back. Uh, came over and rested on the bridge of your nose and would protect your forehead. And it had basically what, were, what would amount to like big, flat, metal, sideburn hinged pieces that would, hold, that would protect your face. What is it the helmet illustrates? Helmet of salvation. 
You remember, and we mentioned a minute ago that Paul says people are going to come and they're going to preach a different Jesus and a different spirit and a different gospel. Satan is happy for you to think about salvation. He just wants you to think about it wrong. Do you have a robust soteriology? Can you defend against the wrong views? Do you struggle with assurance, maybe because you're not understanding the fullness of, of the gift of salvation? And lastly, wielding the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit. Our only offensive weapon is the Spirit's sword, which is God's Word. Our offensive weapon is illustrated by the sword that the soldier would wield, not the ramphaya, which was a, probably a four-foot-long broad sword, four inches wide, usually sharpened on one side. This was a machaira, which was a two- to three-foot sword, which was more like a dagger sharpened on both sides for hand-to-hand combat. It's no coincidence that the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, hangs on the belt of truth. As we studied last week, in order to wield this sword, you must know the word, understand the word, and apply the word. You have a weapon against the methods and the strategies of the devil. You are holding it likely in your lap. It's the Bible. And what you do with your Bible is the most determinative thing about you. That was just review. Let's get really practical. The third consideration. The battlefield of spiritual warfare is your brain. It's your mind. Revisiting Paul's words, you, I'm, I'm afraid your minds will be led astray from Christ by the serpent, by the devil. Satan and his army of demons tempt you to think wrongly so that your mind is led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Do... Do you rec- will you recognize these temptations? Do you see them? Can you spot them and say, that's a temptation to think or believe something that's not true, but God's word informs me what is true? Do you have a radar that's up to see Satan's lies as lies? And again, the battleground for this Conflict is between our ears. It's in our mind. Truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, the word of God. These are all mental thinking components. And you you know that Satan wants to knock your weapon out of your hands. What's your weapon? Your Bible. What's true? God's word. He will tempt you in every... Have you noticed this? He will tempt you in every way with everything possible to keep you from wanting or desiring or having the time to sit down and read your Bible. Isn't that true? Never bring a knife to a gunfight. His lies are guns. And we need to bring a bigger and better gun, which is the word of God, the sword of the spirit. So I want to be super practical as we kind of finish up this this section. If Satan's the father of lies, if that's his chief enemy, if we're to use the truth and the word of God 
and these armaments to defend ourselves and to fight him, that means that we have to be experts in identifying Satan's lies. Can I give you four simple points to look for his lies? Four characteristics of Satan's lies. I didn't get these from a book. I actually sat and thought about my weaknesses and these strengths came out of looking at those. Number one, characteristics of Satan's lies. They, you can say Satan, the demons, these lies, they contend that God's word is helpful, but not sufficient for my life and my troubles. It's helpful, but not sufficient. It will do something, it won't do enough. It will do a few things, it won't do everything. These lies reason that God's words, God's ways are archaic, outdated, old-fashioned, uninformed, not woke. Satan elevates models of understanding. This is what he, I think he means when he says the, the world forces of this darkness. He elevates models of human understanding and behavior to biblical levels or even higher than scripture. The latest psychological fad, do this, try this. I remember when I was in, uh, taking uh, a psychology class in college, the latest thing was isolation tanks. And you get paid $10, this is weird, you can pay $10 to be a part of, of the experiment and go and lay in the saltwater isolation tank for an hour. And so I did it and I fell asleep. I wasn't a very good candidate. And I got $10. Sociological trends that normalize sin as alternative lifestyles, homosexuality, transgenderism, we're being lied to to say this is just normal and an alternative. And God says, no, it's not normal and it's sin and it's wicked and must be repented of. Phasal evaluation of sin. What do I mean by phasal? That sin is a phase. This, is, this happens in parenting. Oh, I know they're disobedient. That's just a phase he's going through. He'll, he'll grow out of it. He won't grow out of it. And if you don't win that battle when he's two, you will never be able to fight it when he's 13. On and on. Raising levels of human understanding and behavior whether psychological, sociological, political, to the level of competing with God's word. And you think, well, God's word, that's helpful. There's some cool verses in Proverbs, but it's not really enough to rule and run my life on. No, no it, it, it actually is. Number two, number one, they contend that God's word is helpful, but not sufficient for my life and troubles. Number two, they focus, these lies, focus on immediate gratification in contrast to eternal joy. They focus on immediate gratification in contrast to eternal joys. Psalm 16, in your hand there are treasures forever. Satan wants you to think that the momentary pleasure of sin will bring you satisfaction, will make your heart happy. Make that happiness last. But it's, it's cotton candy that's really sweet and disappears fast. It's salt water that you drink and only want more. You ever thought about the fact that one of the primary motivations for holy living is heaven? 
And that's the exact opposite of immediate gratification. (laughs) It's hope. We're waiting for a better life and a better day. Be careful. Every sin, every lie that Satan says about sin says, this will make you happy right now. And here's the problem. It usually does. But it doesn't last and it brings guilt and it pricks our conscience. Number three, these lies view personal pleasure and gain above the joy of others. They view personal pleasure and gain above the joy of others. This is called rank selfishness. If you live life for yourself, you will not live life for others. And Paul said, you're never more like Christ than when you're humble, Philippians 2, who emptied himself, who was humble, who put the needs of others above his own. The Son of Man, Mark 10, 45, did not come to be served, but to, but to serve and offer his life as a ransom for many. Satan will convince you, probably not in a dissertation, but in your heart, at the motivation level, that selfishness brings satisfaction. You know this. You do this without even thinking. Come on. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I know it's 10 below zero outside, but when you're going to the grocery store and you're looking for that parking spot, are you thinking, I want the closest parking spot or does the thought ever enter your mind? Maybe I'll take the farthest away so someone else can have that close one. Now, if, if you're my age or older, give us the older parking spots. So give, give us the closer ones. If you, you should take that parking spot if you're older, I should say. I'm just using that as a simple illustration of how intuitive selfishness is. It's so intuitive. Personal pleasure and gain should not be above the joy of others. We pour our lives out for others. And heaven will be the fullness of joy in his right hand that he will give us. Number four, and this pulls several of them together. These sins, these temptations, these demons, these suggestions argue that sin brings lasting happiness, and here's the other side, and righteousness means a loss of pleasure. That's the other side of the coin. They argue that sin brings lasting happiness and righteousness, doing what's right, breastplate of righteousness, means I'm going to lose pleasure. I will not be as happy if I choose obedience. I have a book in my library that's excellent called The Obedience Option. And it's this very issue. Wait a minute. You do know that you have a choice to obey. And you do, do you know that that will make you more satisfied and happy as a holy person than will sin? It's upside down thinking. It's what Isaiah said when we call good evil and we call evil good. It all boils down to this. Listen, will you, will you identify Satan's lies, discern them as lies, and do you know God's word well enough to say it has a better way to think than this lie? Are you wearing the armor of God? 
Are you standing firm? Are you resisting?